Uh, well, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining in. I'm very excited to have a guest on, Dr. Peter Linneman, who I was fortunate enough to also interview last year, and he shared a ton of great insight. So it was natural that I invited him back on to talk about what happened in 2021 and also get a an overview and perhaps his thoughts and insights on what we can expect to see in 2022. Uh, we'll talk about the industrial market, but I might even want to touch on all the different asset classes just to get your thoughts on office and retail as well. Okay. And uh, and also just open it up for questions uh, from anyone that's uh, tuning in as well. So if you're joined in watching this live, uh, hello to everybody. Uh, welcome to say hello as well. And of course, I encourage everybody to ask uh, questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can as we go through this. Uh, but uh, in the essence of time, uh, uh, Dr. Lindemann has to be off in about 55 minutes yeah so we've got almost an hour but we will do a hard stop uh, around uh, 155 and uh, if you need to jump off even earlier uh, dr lindman just let me know otherwise we'll go right to 155 i'll give you and an hour worth of insight in 55 minutes how about i that? love it we'll just have to talk faster <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll shorten the introduction as well as i think a lot of people that have uh tuned in are probably familiar with you idea. as well and and i've posted your bio in the description so people can tune in to see uh, more of uh, your background but let's just jump into it by actually just talking about uh the weather are you, are you still in philadelphia i'm in philadelphia i'm about two blocks from independence hall it is uh the warmest day in about five days it's about 39 and 20 mile an hour winds and <laughs> better than on sunday when it was 12 degrees and 20 mile an hour winds and we did not we were spared the snow was to the south of us the west of us and the north of us we got about an inch of snow on Sunday night at about eight o'clock. And then the temperature rose from 28 to 51 during the night. It melted, it rained, and then the winds were high enough. It blew it off and we didn't get ice. So we escaped all that madness. It sounds like the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, and, and some of the other areas there were pretty hard hit by that storm. They deserve it. I mean, we're <laughs> the, you know, we're the chosen place, right, in Philadelphia. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, so I, I guess maybe you could just bring us up to speed on what you saw in uh, 2021 and how that takes us to where we are in early 2022 right now. So 2021, I'll summarize... And, and in fact, if it's okay, Chad, I'd take the whole 22 months starting about okay. the beginning of March, because in an odd way, it is all kind of a single story, right? The power of the U.S. economy was really, really dramatically demonstrated during those 22 months. We shut the, we shut down what, about 35, 40% of the, really shut it down, 35, 40% of the economy, which obviously introduced all kinds of follow-on, knock-on distortions, which we're still working our way through. The rest of the economy was greatly hampered by COVID. We had massive numbers of premature deaths. In addition, we had massive, um, uh, suicides, un, maybe related, maybe unrelated. We had all-time record high drug deaths. We had political turmoil. We had social turmoil of every imaginable type during that period. And yet, real GDP is about one and a half percent above where it was when all that began. That's an amazing commentary when you think about it. And that means per capita, real GDP, about flat, you know, roughly flat. 
But if you can come through all that flat, you know, that's quite a testimony. Industrial output, about 99% of where it was before all that began. You know, asset prices well up in general, well up. Um, we are about 4% short of where GDP would have been had we not had all those issues. But in an, as we sit here today, I think we make up about half of that 4% gap this year and the other half of that 4% gap next year. So that says you're looking at GDP, real GDP growth on the order of 4.5% each of the next two years. I think we pretty much catch up. We're about three, three and a quarter million jobs short of um, where we started from. And by the way, on we would have added about 3.6 million jobs over those two years. So maybe we're 7 million jobs short. And so I think we add 3.5 million jobs each of the next two years, kind of catching up. A um, lot of runway is the point. A lot of runway. And it's runway that the power of the economy will make up. Uh, unless we do something colossally stupid, like price controls being introduced, um, that would be a real mess. And the other thing I'd say is we end and move forward. Were there a lot of surprises? Yes. But that there were more variances, not among those surprises. That politicians of all ilk do kind of strange and stupid things, that's not a surprise. That the nation didn't start singing kumbaya, um, not a surprise. Um, you know, so by and large, it played out with a lot of volatility. And I think in a nutshell, 2022 will be a year of normalization, a year, a year of, of normalizing how I live, how I travel, how I consume, how I produce, how I distribute, of inflation will be normalizing, etc. Doesn't mean it will be 100% normalized by the end of the year, but this will be, I believe, a great year of normalization. Which is well overdue for the past two years, which which you've said yeah. before, it, it resembled the flight of a butterfly. It was yeah. up, it was down, it was all over the place. Yep, yep, absolutely. So, and that's why I say, not only was it up, down, all over the place, there were some huge drops. There were some huge gaps. There was some huge difficulties socially and politically. I just think we normalize. Not, by the way, that doesn't, I'm not trying to create a picture that this is everything's perfect. That's certainly never true in the history of mankind, the history of this country, the history of this economy. Lots of issues. Um, I have a hundred. I have a friend who's a hundred years old. She's quite an amazing woman. I've known her for fifty-two years. Very dear friend and mentor. And she says, "You know, it's the challenges that make it worth getting up every day." Hmm. And and in a funny way, yeah, we've got a lot of reasons to get up over the next year, and I hope all of my lifetime. Those are wise words from a hundred-year-old who has a lot of experience behind that. Behind that. Let me, let me tell you, I just I give her a shout out, Dr. Lucille. G. Ford. She was the only woman in her MBA class in 1946 in Northwestern. Uh, she ran a business. She sold the business. She got her PhD when she was in her 40s. 
Um, she became a teacher and a provost and a dean and, and then went on to uh, be on four Fortune 500 sort of corporate boards back in the day and then retires in her 70s and starts a charity that she works for for a dollar for like 18 years, really worked, right? And, and a remarkable person. And I'll give you one other thing for the audience. This is really for the audience, although you're a young guy. And about 15 years ago, I asked her, you know, you're about 85. What, what Have you figured out kind of what life is about? And she said, well, more or less, it's to love, be love, and be productive in everything you do in life. I thought, hmm. wow. If I... That kind of captures what we should be all about most days. You've got mail. So, <laughs> yeah. It, maybe that you got mail was, was some more. Yeah, I got to figure out. I'm on my <laughs> wife's computer. I got to figure out how to turn off her AOL. Let's see if I can do that. I think I Goodbye. just did. I think I just did. You there? I am still here. And right. a couple of people just uh, said hello. Uh, Beverly, hi. Thanks for joining in. And I saw Gerald was in as well. Gerald, thanks for joining in. Uh, I, I love that. I love both of those things that she said. I might have to see if she'd be interested in being a guest at some point down the road, too. I'd love uh, to pick her brain on a few things. Go to the source. Go to the yeah. source. <laughs> uh, so I, I guess let's jump into the individual asset classes to see how you how you saw those go through the, the past uh, 18 months. Uh, I want to focus on industrial, which everybody knows has been a, a shining star in in the category of office retail and industrial. Uh, but I still want to get your sense on on what you saw in the industrial market. And then maybe we can jump into office and retail after as well. So I think three things have happened over the last, what, four years in industrial, broadly defined industrial warehouse distribution. One is it came of age in terms of capital markets. Um, it, you know, if you go back to the early 90s, uh, hard to believe, but if you go to 90, I think 91, 92, I wrote a paper with Joe Jerko at Wharton, basically arguing that apartments should be a key part of an institutional investor's portfolio. Well, at that time it wasn't, it was viewed as no credit, et cetera. And we made the case and so forth. Well, warehouses also not generally been part of an industrial, excuse me, an institutional portfolio. And in the last, it's been an evolution, but certainly in the last four years, it came of age. It's not like it became a whole lot different in terms of risk or how, how long it takes to build or the credit of the tenants or things like that. It's just that in the capital markets came to understand what was there and that improved pricing as money flowed. That's one. Second thing was, is, has been, and it took me a while to figure this out. And I didn't figure this out until about four years ago. I knew the trend of online sales was upward. And even though brick sales continued to rise, they were rising at a slower rate with online getting the bulk. But I just always assumed that if I sold let's just say a book. If I sold a book online or I sold it in a store, it needed about the same amount of warehouse space. And about four years ago, I came to understand that's not true. It takes about three times the amount of warehouse space if it's sold directly as if it's sold in a store. And that's because you need wider aisles to accommodate uh, 
getting items one at a time. You need more shipping space. You need assembly space, et cetera. I'm not trying to make three to one as a scientific number, and it differs, but around three to one. Well, if you've got a big component of retail activity growing a lot faster than everything else, and it requires three times the amount of warehouse space as other kind of retail, that's like stratospheric demand. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you can do the math on it. And so I've done kind of, when I say I've done the math, I've done back of the envelope math. And basically you need about 4% a year additional supply of warehouse space to keep up with the trend, not to go off trend, just to keep up with the trend. Well, what, three years ago, we were producing 2% of the stock a year, no surprise, huge supply demand imbalance. And I thought, you know, if you go back, I thought, well, you know, and then it happens again the next year, it goes up to two and a half supply, but it's still 4% needed from a demand. And then it goes to 3% being produced, but you're still falling ever farther behind, even though you're building more. So I think warehouse has got a good five years, maybe more of until the supply gets up to about 4% a year. And then it's got to make up for the years where it wasn't at 4% a year. So the fundamentals look good. And, and it's the three to one phenomena, basically, what it's also in a growing economy. So I like the, the fundamentals and that what I would call three to one math. Now, the, the biggest danger for industrial in a funny way is every day somebody wakes up, a whole bunch of people wake up at Amazon and Walmart and so forth going, how can I get that three to one down to 2.5 to one? Or can I get it down to two to one, whether it's by machines or design or by, you know, changing how you do things. So you could imagine that it just as, as the production gets up to the necessary 4% a year, based on a three to one factor, they, they figured out how to do it at two to one and you kind of miss in between. But, but that's, so I, the fundamentals are good in industrial. The, not every market's a little different, but you've got the broad picture. Third thing is it did become the darling. So in addition to institutional capital finding it, it did become a bit of a darling among capital, especially in certain uh, sub-markets. Mm -hmm. And that has put additional pressure on price. And then the fourth is the amount of money that was pumped into the system with QE1, QE2, QE3. And as it began to coming out, coming out, we talked about that last time in 2013 through 2019, you got cap rates of everything going down. And I think you're going to get a repeat of that based on what happened with QE Infinity as that money starts coming out over the next few years. So simply the weight of money chasing all kinds of assets, including industrial, created cap raise compression. So it kind of was a, not a perfect, it was a perfect, uh, wonderful, not a storm. What's the opposite of a perfect storm? You know, it's the perfect, uh, perfect day. You know, demand fundamentals were good. Supply was lagging. Uh, institutional capital figured out it became a darling. And there was a whole lot of money chasing everything. 
I do want to explore your thoughts on what happens to that spread between cap rates and interest rates uh, if we see interest rates rising. But before I, I get your thoughts on that, I, I've I've noticed that there's a pretty big difference, at least in in the market's perception between warehousing properties and manufacturing properties. So the warehousing yeah. that's all being driven by e-commerce. That those are the big Correct. big bombers, and then you've got the manufacturing. I'm in a market that has heavy oil and gas play, so we still have a big presence of that manufacturing sector, which with oil being depressed for the last seven or eight years has had a drag on that. So our market, if you were to actually break them up, our manufacturing vacancy is probably seven to eight percent. But if you look yes. at our at our high quality distribution space, the vacancy rate is probably sub two percent. So yeah. how how do you how do you bridge that gap? Because it, there's the temptation that that everybody wants to group industrial all under that one single asset class without breaking it down into warehousing and manufacturing. How do you how do you decipher that when you're either trying to look at it at a macro scale or an individual micro submarket scale? Yeah, and it obscures some of the data when everything I just said was more focused on warehouse logistics space mm -hmm. was what I was implicit. And you're right that often it gets linked as manufacturing as well. And of course, that goes back to its roots where you had a manufacturing facility and either adjacent to it or in the back of it was a warehouse distribution, right? So there is an historical logic to it of why it got that way. The, the industrial side, look, the industrial side will do fine. It'll, it will not have a three to one factor though, right? The industrial side is a more or less one to one as the economy and industrial activity picks up, it kind of picks up one to one. So that's not where the disproportionate demand is. The other thing that happens with industrial space is it has to be new and modern and, and, and energy efficient and, and moving forward greener and all those things, right? And some of the older facilities don't quite have that, right? And so I think your characterization is right. What I said about the three to one is uh, warehouse distribution, logistic. It is not the manufacturing side. So a couple more questions that, that stem from that. Uh, uh, first, I guess there seems to be a bit of a shift to uh, onshoring some manufacturing as, as opposed to relying on it in, in uh, uh, other nations. There seems to be a bit of a shift or at least a shift in mentality, whether it's actually materializing in, in more manufacturing happen or whether there's just the wish that it would. Do you see there being reshoring of, of manufacturing and then i guess closely related to that is where you see the price of oil because we're we're flirting in the mid 80s right now for wti and it seems to be holding uh at that period not only is that going to drive a lot of the manufacturing business but it also plays a huge role on transportation costs which make up a huge right. portion of of uh distribution companies as well so two-part question do you see any reshoring to to north america and what's your forecast for oil so you did a dangerous thing with a guy who's almost 71. You asked two questions and it means he has to remember them both. So let me let me start with the onshoring. Um, I think you hit it. It is much more of a thought and maybe a change in mind and where companies are thinking about it, much more so than effectuating it at least so far. Um, that may change. I think in anything related to um, life science, pharmaceutical, 
uh, I could die if we don't have it, right? I think that that is the most likely to be reshored into the U.S., I think a lot of the other they're going to look at, if I was a manufacturer, I'm going to look at, I probably want to make sure I am not completely vulnerable. Some of the, as you know, some of the just-in-time stuff said, well, I'll get one really great facility in the Philippines or Vietnam or whatever, and then any disruption meant I had nothing to fall back on. And that's an old problem in manufacturing, a multiple multiple vendors, right? Multiple suppliers. So I think actually more than reshoring is going to be Mexico, the Maquiadora area. Um, that flowed pretty well during everything. Wasn't perfect, but it flowed pretty well. Um, Mexico has its own problem. They're president and the political system is raising lots of issues and lots of challenges and and the drug related narco stuff has raised challenges but um i think nearshoring probably more than onshoring will be um at least as a second supply source uh you will get some in the sunbelt Right. That will happen. And by the way, has always been happening. You know, South Carolina area has been and, and parts of Alabama and parts of Tennessee have always Texas. been. But I think it's more of a, gee, it would be great if we could without subsidies. Now, if politically we give big subsidies, that obviously would change or we mm -hmm. put in. And obviously the tariffs played into that a bit as well. But I think it's more of a thought process. Now is the oil. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember. Ta now still tax sharp at 71. Yeah. So I was just looking at the oil chart going back to, I think, 1960, adjusted for CPI inflation. Um, interestingly, and, and it, by the way, if it's not 1960, it's 1970. So it's a long time is, is all I'm saying. Right? The oil price more or less today, and by saying more or less today, last month, is right about average in real terms, adjusting for inflation. Not particularly high, it's not particularly low. It is a long way from highs that occurred in real terms, and a long way, a low, a long way from the lows. By the way, the low was only, what, April of 2020, right? It's not that long ago that we had a real low. What it drives home is when you look at that chart, two things hit me. One, it is not absurdly high by historic standards. That means that, yes, it plays into manufacturing cost and distribution cost, but they're not so much different in real terms. Obviously, in nominal terms, it's a lot. Not so much different than most of the last 50 or 60 years, and we've done okay. We've dealt with it, right? And, and, and obviously, it's better if it's lower for a manufacturer. The second thing is huge volatility. <laughs> and of course, we've just seen uh, an evidence of that huge volatility. What is it? I think May last, uh, May 2020 was something like the average price in May was $18 a barrel. And, and, and it was like 80 now. That's volatility. 
The interesting thing is it does go up and down. I think there will be upward pressure on oil from what I view as a bit premature pushes um, on the green side, particularly in Europe, by the way, less so here, but particularly in Western Europe, but oil is a global commodity. So it has knock on effects, right? That it, so I think that uh, there'll be pressure from that side that it will tend to keep prices high. On the other hand, fracking is pretty productive and will keep some band of control, but highly volatile, highly volatile. And if you're, uh, I think, more difficult to manage as a manufacturing company, and we have a couple of clients, is managing through the volatility is harder than the level. Because why? Because if one of my competitors manages through the volatility at a lower average cost of petroleum than I do, that's a real competitive advantage they have. If all of us manage through it the same, it's just like the price of labor or the price of anything else. It's more likely to be passed through in, in uh, prices over the long term. Do you see companies putting more of an emphasis on on derivatives and trying to lock in futures then to hedge that? Yeah, and they've been pretty good at it. I think the big guys do it and have done it for years. And the smaller manufacturers, it's a challenge. And the challenge largely, I think, for the smaller companies, and some do it, but the challenge for the smaller company is do you really have a CFO mm -hmm. who has that kind of sophistication and contacts. And the other problem derivatives have always had, and you've seen it, which is if the hedge works and um, the, the price of oil goes down, let's take oil, it works on any of these currencies the same, price of oil goes down uh, but because you locked it in, you're paying a pretty high price, right? Well, what people often do then is go, well, what an idiot you were, Chad, because if you hadn't done it, we'd have made a lot more money. And so there, and then, by the way, if it goes the other way, there's a tendency to say you got lucky. Mm -hmm. So I think fewer hedge than they should, but there's a lot of, lot of firms that hedge and will continue to hedge, mainly because the volatility and at least short-term hedging, pretty efficient, Long-term hedging of anything is quite hard. Yep. Without uh, holding you to it, do you have any guess on where you'd see that price of oil as a as a band somewhere in 2022? The, yeah, the band would be. And, and by the way, it goes back to the volatility. You'll say mm -hmm. you're cheating, but I'm not. <laughs> 48 to uh, 82, and you say that's a big band, but that is kind of the band, mm -hmm. and. It, we, we just forget how volatile it is. And it has geopolitical dimensions. It has political dimensions. It has economic ups and downturn dimensions. And it has supply dimensions. So all of those are kind of, but, it, and if you made me pick a number, which this is a little silly, because I don't have that good of forecasting by any means. I hope nobody uh, places any money on it. But if you say, okay, we're going to open the envelope a year from now, I'd probably say something around 70 for a year from now. 
I actually like uh, that that tight band because I think if we were to ask a an investment analyst on Wall Street, they'd probably give us a band between twenty and two hundred. So yes, well, <laughs> you're not so far off. And by the way, they're not being twenty and two hundred is a little high, but what? Uh, certainly twenty five to a hundred is not a stupid band. I mean, if you are a data nerd, that's kind of what you should say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, being facetious, of course, I just go back to that. Uh, I think it was 2013 when Goldman came out and said they're expecting it to go to $200 a barrel. And then a couple of years later, it was minus 37 for right, that, right, that one right, trading right. day. Well, and that tells you what it's about. It's highly sensitive. If nobody's driving, nobody's flying, nobody's operating factories, it's, you know, changes it really quick. Um, one of the things that I think helps with oil is the bizarre phenomena that there are a number of company countries that have notable oil reserves that need to keep pumping mm -hmm. to support their economies, their governmental spending, their redistributions, and you can go through them, right? Saudi Arabia and, and, and Russia has to keep pumping you know, if if they did a severe cutback, politically, it's it's a nightmare for them. Yep. Switching gears a little bit, uh, I had one question come up, and you alluded to it a little bit earlier about some distribution buildings uh, that are older not being as compatible or as attractive to companies looking for modern buildings. Uh, a question that that came up from someone was: uh, Do those buildings potentially become functionally obsolescent if you know take an 80s vintage building that has 20 foot ceilings and compare that to a modern building that has ESG in mind and perhaps 40 foot ceilings what happens to that old stock of uh industrial warehouses they become cannabis <laughs> um, I mean that seriously yeah they, we've seen um, it and by the way that's as you know that's happened in a lot of the states that have legalized growing is um a lot of those 19, what, 1920s old manufacturing facilities that and old warehouse facilities that just sat empty forever. Mm -hmm. You know, your your grandfather, your great grandfather's facility, it went out of business in 1974 and it just sat there. And, and what happened, the clear height wasn't appropriate and nobody was using the port anymore and all that. In a lot of these states that where the manufacturer of the growing of cannabis became legal clear heights not so relevant right so clear height disappears uh, but a controlled sprinkled controlled light environment suddenly uh, an 18 foot clear is not such a bad thing mm -hmm. so i'm being a little facetious but i'm not being a hundred percent facetious in my answer which is Look, they'll recycle. That's the history of buildings. They'll recycle either into an unexpected use, and cannabis has been one of them for that kind of property, or they'll eventually end up, and you've seen a lot of them been torn down. Some of them have been converted to apartments, not so much in the uh, suburban areas, but more in the urban areas. The suburban might get torn down, and it's just the cycle of life. Mm -hmm. We should have perhaps had a drinking game for how many times we said facetious between the between the um, two of us. It, it might be a bit too early for, for most of us. Never, I'm not a drinker, and I've never done a drinking game. And having seen people play it, I'm glad I've never done it. Yeah, no, I I, I don't want to be doing it right now either. It's ugly. 
so I, I do want to encourage people to ask questions. So if, if there's anything on industrial that, that I, I missed or you want to get Dr. Lindemann's uh, thoughts on, please uh, ask that in the chat, chat function. Uh, and as if anyone is asking some questions, maybe we can move on and get your thoughts on both office and retail. Uh, there still seems to be a lot of people hesitant to go back to the office, whether that's driven from the employer or whether that's just a changing sentiment within the workforce to go back to the office. How long do you see that trend going? And and I guess a closely related question to hit you with uh, two questions again uh, is, what happens to the office market? What happens to all the underlying value of these of these assets if companies are start restructuring and reevaluating how much office space they need? So this is one of those questions that the first thing I'd say is, I don't think anybody knows, mm -hmm. including me, if we're really honest. Um, second, I would say my view is basically people come back. And um, they may come back with a little more flexibility. Um, the office was never as inflexible as, as the stereotype is made. Right? People were traveling, people were at conferences, people were working at home one day a week uh, in lots and lots of offices, right? That's not new. Um, that, that's been going on for a long time. And, and communicating virtually had been going on a long time. It wasn't encrypted. It was on the phone, right? But mm -hmm. or, or on um, what's it called? Uh, uh, Skype or something like that. But most of what th this is not national security, what we're doing, right? So the fact that this is encrypted, it's nice, but it doesn't really save the world. So I think people come back and I just think it's more productive for more people. I think, by the way, if I have to write a business plan, if I need to write Lineman letter, if I am um, editing something, I'm putting to say something uh, really creative, not that I'm not creative. Yeah, I think working at home works pretty well, but that's not what most people do most of the time. Mm -hmm. What most people do most of the time is process, interface, process, move along, oversee, manage. And I think most people are much more efficient in person than not in person. Uh, and I think a little bit of the way we got by working remote is knowingly or unknowingly, we picked up the pace. We picked up, you know, we, I think a lot of people were intent on showing to their employer, I'm not a slacker, right? I'm here all the time. I can do, I can do that. I don't think is a permanent state for most people. You just can't operate like that permanently. And actually, one of the things the office does is delineate my time from your time, right? And it does. Now, is it a perfect delineation? No, but it does. Let's face it, when most people walk out of the office at the end of the day, it is sending a signal, don't bother me unless it's really important, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to when I'm at the office, bother me. So I think it sends a delineation. I think most of us are social beasts and, and therefore um, I think people work better. And the comment I, I got, I was watching Ricky Gervais's version of The Office, the British version of The Office, uh, the old show Office, which then became the US. And, and the whole show is premised on the people at work 
in the office, including mid-level management, spend all their time trying to figure out how to screw off while they're in the office. Well, if, and by the way, one of the reasons it resonated is so many office worker go, yeah, that's Tim, that's Larry, that's whoever, right? And it resonated. Well, can you imagine the not at office version that Ricky Gervais would write of people working remotely? It can't be better. It just can't in general be better, right? And so I think people come back, but I don't know. And as a result, I think office, I think office is underappreciated at this point um, by capital markets. Uh, I think these companies do come back. Leasing is picking up. It's still slow, but picking up. Um, but there is a chance that office is really overpriced. Namely, if if 40% never come back, let's just, I'm pulling that number out of the air, right? If 40% never come back, we've got a lot, way too much space. And the better space will fill and the lower quality space, back to your warehouse example, right? Those lower quality warehouses just became obsolete, right? And I think a lot of the lower quality office would just become literally obsolete. And the transition would be, uh, take several years as people emptied the weak buildings and move into the stronger buildings. And so office has still got a big unanswered question. And I think the normalization of this year uh, will help answer that question. I don't think we'll have a complete answer until 18 to 20 months from now, but I think the normalization will help. Yeah, I completely agree with all your comments. And and I, I kind of look at it from my own situation. I have I have children that are far from working age, but if I were to give them any advice that they would look to for, from their dad, I would say now is the time where you want to be in the office. Oh, so I, I can appreciate people that don't want to go back. I understand the commute. I understand all the tassel with that. But I would say to my kids, just speaking purely anecdotally, I would say to my kids, be at the office because not only will you separate yourself from all the people that are working from home, you're going to have all that face time. You're going to pick up so much more of the office culture, what's happening. And I think it also makes you more immune to being uh, laid off if for whatever reason the company Clearly. has to lay off. Like if if I'm the CEO of a company and I had to lay off uh, one person, one I see every day and one I only see on a, on a zoom call like this, I, it's going to be much easier for me mentally just to lay off the one that I, that I don't see. So I, I, I would say to my kids, I am not reflective to advice to anybody, but if, if I wanted to excel, if I wanted to be a promoted and, a, and essentially continue rising in the company, I would be at the office. hundred percent. So By the way, you know, we have an, an analog to that in that people who work in big corporations in that one or two person office in a foreign country. And that has always been a challenge, right? To be the one or two person, which is remote. It's a different kind of remote, right? But it's remote. And we know that that's always been challenged in the ways you've just described, right? Um, there's a scent to Siberia dimension when you get to be the one or two person office. Uh, way away from the home base. So I, I totally, I totally agree with everything. Um, and unfortunately, um, 
how can I say this? I, I, have, I have great respect for young people, but the young people are the ones least likely to fully appreciate what you're saying at this point in their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they, they figured out that they don't have to commute. They, they have an extra half hour that they save each way in the morning and the way home, and, and they don't have to uh, go through the process of putting on a suit and doing all the stuff that's required of being in yeah. an office and and they think that it's just an easier life but i think with that easier life makes you more susceptible to to having change afflicted upon you as opposed to just working on your couch and thinking that everything's gonna exist yeah. so I, I i i hope that more people see that because i i think that the people that physically go into the office are going to fare way better in the long run uh, and Beverly just commented, I miss working in an office sometimes. Uh, you can come hang out at our office anytime you want, Beverly. You, you, uh, well feel free to pop well in done. anytime. I like that. Uh, so before I, I get your thoughts on retail, maybe we'll just uh, see uh, why. Were there any questions that, that popped up for Dr. Lindemann here? Uh, oh, awesome question from our friends down in Calgary. Uh, that's what I was going to ask Chad. Also, how to convert office towers to another use and how likely it would be to bring additional or higher output services for added washrooms to convert to residential, which is what many people are forecasting. Just speaking for Calgary specifically, and speaking of Calgary, I, I saw the other day that they actually have a 34% vacancy in their downtown office market. So they're definitely one that'd be looking to convert some office buildings. Uh, and then a follow-up also, how is each municipality shifting their property tax requirements to continue the offset of lower price assets in downtown markets? Hope this so, helps uh, as I'm trying to listen and type. Thank you so much for the question. Great question. Again, she asked two questions of an old guy. So <laughs> look, there have been a lot of, not a lot. There are There is a subset of people who have done a very effective job of converting old office towers into very effective residential. In New York, in Chicago, in Philadelphia, Boston, it tends to be in the places that have older office towers that became obsolete as new office towers got built. So it's a pretty known, uh, it's a different business than ground up. Obviously it involves some of the same issues, but it's a different business um, than ground up. Um, but it's a known how to do it. In fact, I'm about to invest. Uh, I think we're about to, in the next month or two, going to buy, uh, be part of a consortium buying two office, old office towers that are truly empty and converting them into apartments. Hmm. And I think it's, it is something to be done. Now, the question that arises is, well, who the hell is going to live in them if nobody's going to work <laughs> at the office, right? And that bothered me at first. And then a former student of mine, Anouk DeBay, when I was talking to him about this issue, um, said, where do you go for holiday? And you say, okay, I go to London, I go to Tokyo. Uh, this is in the day, right? I go to Chicago, I go to London, I go to Paris, I go to Melbourne, uh, Sydney, I go to, you know. Where, and he says, yeah, you're naming cities. Are you working while you're there on holiday? No. Well, why do you go to the city? And you say, well, that because there's a lot of fun things to do. Now, obviously, this is a whole nature kind of holiday separate, right? So I'm not. And he says, he jokingly said, but it was dead on, which is people want to be there. They just don't want to work there. And in fact, the city actually becomes more attractive if these other people aren't working there because there's not those 
deliveries and traffic tying up in that way. So it's actually a more attractive residence. And I thought, yeah, and I hadn't focused on that because all my life I've lived in the urban core. You know, my office is a 10 minute walk from my residence and it's been, you know, the farthest it's ever been is probably 20 minutes walk from, and I hadn't thought of it that way, but his point was, yeah, people want to be there. They just don't necessarily want to work there. So I think there would be demand um, if you could do nice jobs and then some amenities come along with it. The property tax issue is a challenging one because generally um, uh, the office sector has carried a relatively high tax burden compared to the residential side of life. And that's because people often, the corporate headquarters is in Seattle, not in Tuscaloosa, but the people who live in Tuscaloosa live in Tuscaloosa. So there's this political dimension. So there are some implications on how it all works on taxes, and I haven't been smart enough to figure that all out yet. Uh, I had a question come in from Gerald, which I, I guess kind of ties all into it somewhat indirectly with, with taxes and fiscal policy and, and the Fed spending money. And he was curious what happens with all this quantitative easing and bond buying. And once the Feds start reversing course on all these stimulus packages that they've had, how do you think that that plays into to 2022 here? Well, I've been pretty vocal on this, uh, and I was pretty vocal in 2018, 19 about this, which is the weight of money is what in any kind of short term, and I include three, four, five years, it's the weight of money that drives prices, not interest rates. Now, if you think about maybe a 30-year vision, obviously interest rates are part of the story, but in any shorter term, it's not. And I've done empirical research on this. I've thought about it a lot. So I think why were prices where they were at from 2014 to 2019 was QE1, QE2, QE3 put unprecedented amounts of money in the system. And while not all of it came out, more than normal came out, mm -hmm. 5% more, 10% more, chasing assets. And, and as the chased assets, stocks went up, bonds went up, gold prices went up. Real estate, home prices went up, et cetera, et cetera. So now we pumped even more money into the system with QE Infinity. We stopped the money coming out of the system during the shutdown, during the pandemic. The money went in and basically stayed in. It didn't go down, but it didn't really more money come out. And I think as you look at the next five years, you get sort of a repeat of 2014 to 2019, which is all the money they put in to the Fed, but to the banks via the Fed is not going to come out. But even if only 5% more than normal comes out or 10% more than normal comes out, it's a lot of money chasing the same assets and you'll see prices go up, which is cap rates come down. Um, so I, I, I see that now when the Fed stops buying, I don't think they're going to liquidate their portfolio. When the Fed stops buying, what will happen is the bond market will see and, 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 and related markets will see a major demander disappear. So think of an auction and there's 
500 bidders in the auction room and the federal, the Fed has been winning a fair number, like a third of all the auctions. I'm putting an artificial face on this. And now the Fed disappears, okay? But you still have 499 bidders. The Fed was only winning about a third of the bids. You have a whole bunch of other entities, mutual funds, et cetera, et cetera, insurance companies who are happy to bid. The price will go down. Will it go down dramatically? I don't think it goes down dramatically because you still have 499 bidders in the room that are well capitalized. And I know they're well capitalized because our previous answer was the Fed's put so much money in the system and it's got to find a home that it's going to keep not just cap rates low, it's going to keep interest rates low, right? Because it's chasing it. This is why you have negative interest rates in Germany and Japan. There's a lot of money chasing. So I think what happens is the long rate might rise from, well, I don't know where it's at today, but might rise to 2.4, 2.5 with volatility. Uh, when the Fed stops buying, it won't go much higher than that because I think there's too much other demand. Now, that increase would be, what, 80 basis points, let's say. Mm-hmm. I don't think that 80 basis points move cap rate. I, based on my research, I just don't think that moves that. And so I don't see that movement having any impact on cap rates or stock multiples because there's just too much money. And it stops the price from rising. Now, if the Fed tomorrow sold their entire portfolio, imagine that right? Imagine tomorrow the Fed liquidated their entire portfolio. Would the price of bonds really go down at least for a few days? Yes. They're not going to do that. They're going to go from being a demander to a not demander, but they're not going to become a big seller. At most, they would let it run off as the, you know, as the maturity of the bonds came, they'd let it run off. And they didn't even do a lot of that last time. And I guess that plays into your to the narrative that you're expecting for 2022 just being a normalized year. Normal. Uh, so you're not seeing any any upward pressure on on cap no. rates and interest no, rates. No, should no, be I think I think if anything, I see further downward pressure on cap mm-hmm. rates as some of that money starts coming out. That's that's actually really interesting. Chad, sorry to interrupt. Just letting you know it's uh, 250. Okay. Perfect. Uh, do you have time for uh, one more question? Sure. I think Kevin had a question in there uh, and why that's the question I just looked at. Yeah, perfect. Kevin, uh, view of the single family rental investment space on the rent to own model. What are your thoughts on that? Look, it's a great sector. We did some of it uh, a few years back. Um, it's a good sector. You have to be patient. Um it has a barbell, at least in my experience, and, and I saw it with Colony, and I saw it with Blackstone, I saw it with uh, uh, Starwood and so forth as we talked to them. If what you have is, and I'm being glib, but if it's a pickup truck and you pay your taxes, right, and you do your own repair, your sister-in-law does the repair work, the plumbing and so forth, Um, you can't avoid making money. You just can't avoid it, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's, unless you're, you buy in a horrible location, there's people who don't have the money for the down payment. They can make the monthly. They want to be in a school district. Um, They want a backyard. 
so yeah, it's it's a market that has a demand. And if you can keep your overhead low, you cannot avoid making money. You won't become a billionaire, right? But you can't avoid making money. By the way, if you get really, really big, you can't avoid making money for because, because there's demand and you can do. And by the way, your financing costs get very cheap because you can float bonds into the bond market, right? On the debt side, you can raise some really cheap debt and you can do things and you can put in place systems and the guys like you, you can amortize the cost of hiring you to do the reporting needed if you have institutional money. And if you have enough units, amortizing that cost of systems and talent is easily done. The middle is hard. The middle is hard is if you want to do, I don't know, I'm just taking a number, 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, 80 million, 100 million, you're going to have to have more than a pickup truck, your sister-in-law, and pay your taxes. You're going to have to have audited books. You're going to have to have a real auditor do it. You're going to have to have somebody like you as the asset manager and the reporting. You're going to have to have fairly sophisticated systems and controls. That drag, that overhead, you just need to have, I think, several hundred million of equity to make that overhead amortized efficiently. So there's this barbell where you, it's quite profitable at a small scale, quite profitable at a large scale. It's going from small to large where it's of limited profitability. You're making money at the property, property level, but giving it all back in reporting and systems and so forth. That's mm -hmm. my view. And I'm sure there are exceptions, but that's kind of the view. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. Even just from a management standpoint of having to be hands-on in that in that middle middle ground, you're you're spending all of your time actively managing. But once you get a certain amount of scale, it's it's easier to hire that sure. out. So, yep. uh, well, I, I promise I'd have you out uh, at twelve fifty-five. Very kind. I just had a dot. family uh, phone. Nothing bad. Quite the opposite. But there's a family phone call logistics that. Uh, we had to piece together to get everybody on the same page at the same time. And, and uh, so I, I, that call is going to begin in about five minutes. So Chad, as always, it's a pleasure. Likewise, uh, Dr. Lindman. treat dealing with you and uh, enjoy the year of normalization. Yes, you as well. And I, I will tap you again to, to get your thoughts later in 2022, if you're open to it. My pleasure. Have a great day. You too, Dr. Lindman. And why don't uh, don't cut me off quite yet. I just wanted to a quick, couple quick things I wanted to say as well. Uh, I hope I got to everybody's questions, but if for whatever reason I didn't, uh, feel free to fire me an email. Uh, my uh, personal email is griffiscre at gmail.com. Uh, well, I don't know if you're able to put that up, but that'd be helpful if you can. Uh, so feel free to uh, fire me a question. Uh, if I can't answer it or if it's uh, for somebody else like Dr. Lineman, I'm happy to forward it and get his thoughts on that. Uh, I, I really do appreciate everybody jumping on, saying hello, asking questions means a lot. And I also uh, just wanted actually one quick plug. Uh, so Gerald, who asked the question a little bit earlier, he also has a podcast called The Real World of Real Estate. And I was fortunate to be on a panel uh, on his channel a couple of weeks ago, given a market update. Uh, and it was a, it was a great episode, uh, uh, tons of great insight from the other people on the panel. So uh, Gerald, if you're still on, if you could 
put a link to that in the chat and I'll also put a link to that uh, in the comments after this goes goes live. Uh, but again, I just wanted to thank everybody for jumping on. I uh, got a, a great roster of guests coming up. Uh, I think I'm actually have people scheduled all the way till March right now. And then we're looking to continue adding more people as well. So great roster roster. I really appreciate you guys joining in and uh, any comments, any questions, feel free to shoot me an email and I'll try to get back to everybody as quickly as I can. Thanks again so much for watching. Catch you in the next video.